We are the second largest contributor to economic goodwill in the world behind manufacturing, which no one knows. We're bigger than banking, we're bigger than farming, we're bigger than the automotive industry. No one knows that. No one in the industry is asking for you know, handouts like farming and so forth. But equally, we're not looking for barriers to be put up inadvertently by governments. This is Up in the Air, a show about travel adventures, frequent flying, and the unique experiences we have along the way. I'm Ian Agrimis, and in this episode, you'll hear from Brett Tolman about wielding a samurai sword in Japan, how the travel industry is reducing their carbon footprint, and what it's like to manage 40 different travel brands through a global pandemic. As anyone who's run a business knows, you can read about your industry all you want, even study it. But when it comes to learning, there's no substitute for experience. After all, you can't read about doing push-ups to get stronger. You have to get down and do some push-ups. If there's one industry that's spent the entire pandemic on the floor trying to do push-ups, it's the travel industry as they try to navigate the environment caused by the pandemic. You learn a lot trying to lead one business through such a challenge, but imagine trying to lead 40. I'll spare you another push-up metaphor. That's been the job of Brett Tolman, CEO of the Travel Corporation, which owns 40 different travel brands operating in 70 countries and serving nearly 2 million travelers in a typical year. As fate would have it, 2020 was TTC's 100th year in business, tracing its roots back to a small hotel outside of Cape Town, South Africa. The company is known for high-end touring, luxury experiences, and transportation. While this year wasn't what any of us had in mind for the travel space, I wanted Brett to start at the beginning of the story to get a better idea of how he got to where he is today. And just a heads up, there's a little bit of microphone rubbing for the first 10 minutes, but it goes away. Back in the late 60s, early 70s, my parents developed one of the early safari lodges in a place called the Timbavati. And in the early days, it was very much camping before we were able to build out the uh, lodge there. And I remember particularly, as my father said on a uh, 100 year video that we did back in August. Back in those days, we were pretty uninformed and unsophisticated. And it's very lucky that we never had uh, any particular issues in the bush. But a couple of very fond memories all of our siblings have was we went for a walk in the bush one day with no guide, no gun. It was my parents mm. and the four children. And we took my mother's dog with, who uh, she's famous for never going anywhere without her long haired Dachshund. And so <laughs> my father and the other three kids were ahead of my mom and I, and we were about 20 feet behind because the dog was stopping to smell and pee and so forth. As we're walking along on the semi foot worn path, this black mamba came out of the <sighs> grass. A black mamba for your listeners is uh, one of the most dangerous snakes in the world. You bit by a black mamba, and I think you're dead in less than five minutes. And this thing was about 20 feet, and it just kept coming. Fortunately, the dog did not bark at it because it probably would have turned on us. And it just crossed oh the path, and we went on. So that was certainly oh one of my, my scariest memories. And another one was in Southern Africa, you have all these dry riverbeds. There's been a drought in Africa for decades. And... Mm -hmm. uh, Sometimes during the rainy seasons, these rivers do fill up. And so during the non-rainy seasons, you drive through these riverbeds, you can get to see some great game viewing up in the trees and on the riverbanks. 
and we stopped where a lion was being pestered by about 40 uh, baboons, which are a very nasty animal. They look <laughs> peculiar, but they have these very large fangs. Anyway, yeah. so there's 30 baboons sitting in the tree, pissing off this lion below, pelting him with uh, nuts and so forth. And they see this vehicle come in underneath, which is an open air uh, Land Rover. And they all decided to urinate down on us, which was, again, <laughs> a, uh, a very memorable experience. <laughs> I'm sure uh, being able to have those kinds of experiences is something we're all missing this year. And I was, I was reading your bucket list blog post from January, which was incredible. But, oh, man, it was published just before, you know, COVID was a legitimate global concern. So it was fun to read because I, I related to the excitement that came across Right. from your post, being excited to go to all these new places. And for someone that travels as often as you, it seemed likely that you would get to many of them this year. But how does some somewhere make it on, on that list? It's a combination of things uh, from a business standpoint. When we've developed a new destination like Colombia was going to be this year, we've been working with Pro Colombia. They're an incredible tourist board to work with. We developed some tread right projects. And then Kentucky, right. our youth brand, developed an amazing experience to go see cotton top tail monkey. As I say, Pro Columbia was able to help us develop these experiences while we also developed new inbound programs with Kentucky Trafalgar and Luxury Gold, three of our brands. And then you have personal ones where my family and I have obviously often conversations at the dinner table. Together, we agreed our number one bucket list last year was to go to Japan. The kids still talk about it. So that's certainly one of the top ones on our bucket list from a family standpoint. Awesome. How lucky are we? Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. You, you do have to go and test out some of these new offerings from, from the various brands that you oversee as CEO of the Travel Corporation. But I know one of the biggest projects that is really important to you is TreadRight. And you, you mentioned it briefly and this kind of emphasis on sustainable tourism is kind of what that was born out of you know, an effort to become carbon neutral as, as uh, TTC and to give back to local communities. So what is, what is TreadRight? You know, TTC is a family owned and run business. We're in our hundredth year. I'd like to say we're going to celebrate our hundredth year this year, but obviously this is no time to celebrate much of anything other than the fact that we're alive and this pandemic will end at some point. Amen. We're very grateful for that. Amen. So as a family, you know, we had some conversations about 15 years ago that in order to protect and preserve our business, we had to help protect and preserve our industry for future generations to come. And as a caring, empathetic, philanthropic family, having come from Africa, we also appreciated how under threat so many wildlife species are, which are also such an important part of travel and tourism. I know in the past, tourism has been criticized not just for over-tourism, but for how little money is left in the destinations when we cruise there or we take travelers there and that we're all very profit-centric. While that's mm -hmm. true, because as the saying goes, you have to do well in your business in order to do good out in the world. If we're not generating profits, we cannot invest in tread right and help protect places we go and so forth. And mm -hmm. in taking money from the customer, we thought it was important that we don't ask them to donate to our foundation or the projects, but that we take a percentage of our profits we make every year and we put those into the foundation. And that that's our way as a family and a business to say, 
we are doing our part to try to give back and we don't want more money from the traveler who's already paid for their holidays, but we'll take a percentage of those profits and put them back into doing right in the world. So incremental change is what we believe in and that, you know, anyone, including all your listeners to this podcast, you can all make a difference and a change in the world today, tomorrow, in terms of helping reduce climate change, reduce global warming by reducing our footprint. Coming right. back to Tread right then. So we have a, a board of directors that includes some great individuals out in the world. Costas Christ, who's a sustainability expert. He writes for National Geographic. He's advised Virtuoso Travel Network in the past. He's our chairman. Yes, Mr. Costas. Exactly. I've known the man for 15 years. He's a great friend. We have Celine Cousteau, the granddaughter of Jacques Cousteau, the great underwater explorer. She's been our planet ambassador now for many years, and she's an advisor to our group. Together, we find projects that we recommend, that we then approve. We inspire other people to bring projects to us. Some of them come from our travels in South Africa from a wildlife project. Uh, we have a Relais Chateau property in the Cedarburg Mountains, which is about two and a half hour drive outside Cape Town called Bushman's Clue, mm -hmm. where we have some of the oldest rock art in history that we have the privilege of helping protect and look after. In those Cedarburg Mountains, there's a species called the Cape Leopard. Hey, Brett. Hey, I hate to interrupt you, but it sounds like your microphone might be rubbing on your shirt or something. So you, you were saying about the leopards? This is a Cape Leopard. They live in the mountains, so they're much smaller. They're much stockier. They're not nearly as lithe as a leopard that runs across the plains of Africa. And over the last 20 years, farmers have really encroached on their environment. And equally, farmers have been facing a drought for the last 20 years. So it's a double whammy per se, where the leopard is now having to encroach on the farmlands in order to find food. So they're preying on the livestock of the farmers who are under mm -hmm. terrible duress, where they're just trying to stay alive. They need, they're struggling to feed their animals to keep them watered. So what they're doing is shooting and killing any leopard that comes on their properties and tries to prey on their livestock. Right. And it's hard to blame them. Exactly. Both sides. The leopard's starving. He or she needs to find food. So the easiest prey is a, is a cow, for example, or sheep mm -hmm. that the farmer has. When I went to South Africa some years ago on a trip with my family, we went to a, uh, a local excursion that one of our companies, Lion World, supports down there, where a woman started something called the Cheetah Outreach, which was very similar concept of cheetahs are being killed by farmers who are poaching on their livestock. So they introduced something called the Turkish Anatolian sheepdog, which is this massive animal. Mm -hmm. And it's not obviously domesticated at all. And this yeah. animal is strong enough and courageous enough to chase off cheetah, lion, leopard. So mm -hmm. we said, okay, why don't we take this as a tread right project? Let's introduce this animal to the farmers, being they are financially very uh, under duress. We will pay for the animal. We will train the animal for the first year, support them, help them indoctrinate it into farm life. And hopefully 12 months on, they can take on the feeding of it. And during that time, the animal will keep the leopard away from the livestock and it'll prevent the, the farmers from having to kill them. So we're now in our fourth year of doing it. We're doing, I think it's 12 farms. 
And this is really an amazing project that's taken off. And we have seen a reduction in the death of Cape leopards in the area. So project Very that good. we're so proud of and excited about. One thing I failed to mention, sorry, earlier was we have three pillars in Treadright, helping look after our planet, protect wildlife, and look after indigenous and local communities by obviously being traveled, as you say, as a force for good. And obviously, in many cases here, we're talking about women and girls, and therefore, mm-hmm. we're looking to bring them into the workforce. There's a, an author called Paul Hawken, H-A-W-K-E-N, who wrote a book a couple of years ago called Drawdown, which I highly recommend anyone reads who is interested in how we protect our planet and reduce climate change. And he presents many reasonable, realistic solutions to reversing climate change. And one of the most important ones he puts in there is you bring more women and girls into the workforce. This can actively help reduce global warming and climate change because of how the female species really is so much more productive in protecting all things, reducing footprints and so forth. So I think it's an incredible aspect and why I always talk about the future is female and why we promote as many women and girl projects as we can in the world. That's amazing. For people listening who might work in the travel space and and are considering similar shifts to a carbon neutral business model or just to reduce their carbon footprint period, how quickly do you expect the investment in reducing TTC's footprint to become net positive if it isn't already? It's a great question, Ian. Thank you. We're not there yet. We've got a long way to go. It starts with data. As the saying goes, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. So the first thing you need to do mm-hmm. is measure your footprint so you know what it is and where it is You know, in terms of electricity, gas, water usage, and so forth. And then what are your flight miles if you're in the travel business? And what are your mm-hmm. on-the-ground carbon measurements as it pertains to transportation, food waste, and so forth. And that's something we undertook a couple of years ago. We've introduced some measurement tools and so forth. We're happy to share any and all of our learnings. You know, this is not about something we have bragging rights because we're going to be carbon neutral by X date and someone else isn't. This is all about the survival of our planet and the survival, I believe, long-term of our species. Yeah. Teamwork. We'll share any of our learnings. We got the same from Intrepid, a company that's a B Corp and is, to my knowledge, the only tour operator in the world today that is carbon neutral. And so mm-hmm. we've learned some things from them. So it's a, it's a number of steps. We've worked actively over the last many years to reduce our footprint in terms of our water usage, our electricity, etc. in our offices. Everyone buys into it. All of our teams around the world have been a part of this from the very beginning. So now it's over a decade we've been doing this. So everyone understands and buys into it to one degree or another. We can over-index. I've had a war on single-use plastics for a couple of years, and I've found out I was very upset about this back in November that some of our people, especially from our contact center in our office here in Los Angeles, could not afford to find somewhere for lunch that didn't use single-use plastics. And so Mm. they were petrified to come into the office and eat their lunch because they had a single-use plastic. So they were sitting in their cars eating lunch. And when I found this Mm. out, I immediately reversed our single-use plastic 
policy to not be that draconian because obviously yeah. you don't want to have your team sitting in the car park eating their lunch, especially in Los Angeles in the peak <laughs> summer no. months. So no. you can over-index a bit and that's why you've got to be a very good listener and you've certainly got to be very empathetic on these issues on how you balance it all out. But besides that, we've invested heavily in solar over the past several years. We've spent a fortune on putting solar in where we could reduce you know, at least 50% of our electricity usage. We've just spent a million dollars at our office in Cyprus, just near Long Beach last year that we moved into to put in a drought resistant landscape solution, which has reduced our water usage by 80%. So we've done all of those things. But when it comes to airline travel, when it comes to our vehicles on the road, et cetera, obviously those are carbon footprints that we cannot eliminate. So we have been working actively on a carbon offset program. Yeah. Uh, Shannon Guian, who's our chief trade right and sustainability officer, has identified a company called South Pole. Yeah, South Pole Group. Yeah. So we think the work they do is incredible. So our carbon offset is going to be with them when we go forwards next year with this. And as it pertains to how long it's going to take us, it, it kind of depends on the recovery because if let's mm-hmm. say 70% of our footprint is going to be eliminated by carbon offsets on behalf of our travelers and our own business travel uh, mileage and so forth, then it's got to be using money to obviously pay for these offsets. And sure. I don't want to do that until our business has recovered. Again, coming back to that comment about you've got to do well in business in order to do good in the world. So of course. my hope and expectation is we will be carbon neutral by, let's say, 2025 or 2026, no later than that. But it all depends on, and I'll do it earlier, if our profitability returns yeah. sooner that's than great. later. That's great. That's soon. Yeah, not soon enough. but Sure. Yeah. But I think that's a aggressive timetable. Um, compared to the, the majority of the industry. I know a lot of people criticize particularly air travel for being a major pollutant and having a large carbon footprint. Footprint, of course, yeah. But it has a very positive secondary effect too. And I think Costas wrote a great article about this, which is the act of bringing tourism dollars to a place that otherwise wouldn't have it, keeps that land used for, for tourism purposes and particularly like in Africa, preserves areas uh, uh, that would otherwise be turned into cattle farming, which obviously has devastating uh, impacts exactly. on the, the environment. So it's, it's, it's kind of an interesting balance to strike. It is. And what I would note is, you know, depending on how long this pandemic goes on, if we're not careful, we might end up with no airlines. And uh, then that'll be a self-fulfilling prophecy that we no longer have <laughs> the carbon footprints of airline traffic, but uh, we can't go anywhere. And I mean that sincerely because, you know, Delta just announced they lost $4 billion in the last quarter. The U.S. airlines are losing $300,000 a minute, $27 million a day. They've obviously started furloughing or laying off thousands of people. And unless they get government support in the US, unless British Airways and Virgin Atlantic gets more support in the UK as other examples. These airlines are going to go out of business if, you know, this pandemic and the massive reduction in air travel, which is, you know, 80% down at this point on the same time last year. Yeah. These airlines aren't going to be able to survive as will most travel companies. Yeah. You're a leader in the travel space. You've established that. And you set a good example for how 
people should do good or tread right, as you guys say. But while traveling, can you think of a time when you you traveled somewhere and you knew you had made a mistake, either in this respect or or otherwise? And and what did you learn from it? Obviously, hindsight's twenty twenty. So, if you're asking the question based on today, then absolutely. But I think your question's more in the past. So, mm-hmm. I mean, yes and no. You know, because one can justify to yourself anything if you want. But, you know, I could think of certainly in the past, I've said to myself, you know, I'm flying somewhere for two days to attend an important business conference and then I'm flying home or I'm going somewhere else. And I always said, you know, you should spend more time in the destination to learn about it if you've not been there before and to support the local economies. And I would say 99 out of 100 times, I would never do that. So I certainly have regret from that perspective that Mm -hmm. I didn't do that in the past. Sitting here today, seeing, you know, what the pandemic has done to our industry, but also having a greater sensitivity to, you know, how many trips I want to take in a year, both for my footprint and also living in the world of Zoom and Teams calls today. I do appreciate sitting here today that I would not travel as freely as I used to, not because I'm scared of getting COVID, but because I recognize my job can be done probably 80% effectively sitting wherever I am doing these virtual sessions and so forth than having to fly there. But I would also say, which again is the value of travel and tourism, that nothing replaces being there, obviously tasting the food, you know, what Mexican food tastes like versus what we think Mexican food is when we live in America is obviously day and night as one example, but more so the people, the history, the geography, the geology. I love history. So that really gets to me. But with our children, when we went to Japan, it was all about the cuisine. It was all about the fashion, but equally having the opportunity to take him to the Hiroshima Museum and learning about that and standing there where that atomic bomb hit and hearing the stories and seeing Japanese school children around hearing the same lesson and then going into the museum and seeing clothing that was obliterated by the fallout and hearing some of the stories of people who lived beyond it and seeing their photographs, you know, I think gives you an incredible appreciation for not just what the people of Hiroshima and Japan went through, but what nuclear energy and what nuclear bombs can do. And we all walked away, you know, absolutely appreciative that this is something that can never happen again to anyone in humanity. Yeah. I I really want to go there. I was supposed to go. (laughs) I recommend it to everyone. Listeners of this podcast will, will, will have heard this story already, but I was supposed to go there next month and, uh, I've obviously had to cancel my trip for, for obvious reasons, but I do this segment on this show called explain that gram. So speaking of Japan, I saw a photo of you and your family, you're all holding uh, katanas. So tell me about that day and what was going on there. So a friend of ours who lives here in Los Angeles um, is also in the travel business and they arrange very high-end, very immersive, um, unique experiences. And they mentioned that they'd gone and had a day learning what it was like to be a, what do you call it? Samurai? Samurai. And I was okay. like, wow, we've got to do that. Yeah. And so when we were in Kyoto, they kindly arranged for us to go to this dojo. And there was an authentic samurai who was there with two people. And 
we spend half a day and they start with the ceremony. You sit there, you know, getting dressed up. You sit there having a, a cup of tea. You go through some rituals and so forth. And then we got to go outside and practice and rehearse for an hour and so forth. And it was amazing because you really felt immersed in it. You were dressed for the moment. And I always remember our, at the time, 16-year-old son who mm -hmm. is a little insecure in some ways. He was the best performer and how he walked out so proud of how he had sliced through that mat. <laughs> you really saw him walking an inch taller when he left there. So that was another wonderful, very touching memory for my wife and I from being there. That's really cool. So you obviously, you did get to cut uh, something and was, yeah. were you amazed at how sharp that sword was? Unbelievable. They say they're incredibly sharp because they make the blade from one single piece of, of metal and they just hammer it repeatedly. Correct. So it's like incredibly hard and incredibly sharp. I didn't put my fingers anywhere near the edge knowing that, but uh, I certainly take their word for it. And when you see it cutting through that katami mat, as you say, you can just sense it. And I spend a lot of time in the kitchen around sharp knives and I've lost a few fingertips on uh, mandolins. So <laughs> I have a high respect for any sharp blade. Well, you've had the opportunity to travel extensively and, and to experience the best of luxury travel and unique experiences, as you were just alluding to. Um, I'm sure through your own company's travel brands and your involvement in the industry, but what what does it take for you to get excited about a travel experience now? Dreaming, you know, about where to go next, whether it's talking with family about Vietnam and Cambodia, whether it's thinking about Africa and Botswana, where we're currently trying to finish what's going to be an incredible safari lodge called Kijira in the heart of the Akavango Delta. And just mm -hmm. knowing so much about this project that we've been working on for two years and what it's going to look like and the local communities we're going to be benefiting, we're going to be generating manure obviously from our footprint there and we're going to be giving mm -hmm. all of that manure to local communities to use for growing uh, fruit and vegetables etc we have a leopard project we're working on there we're going to have the opportunity for guests to learn how to be a tracker for a day anyway so it's very easy for me to get excited about all these projects but and destinations but we're also seeing it very much with uh, you know people in general Obviously, with the mm -hmm. inability to travel anywhere, we know there's a huge pent-up demand. We're seeing it where Qantas Airlines, for example, announced, I think, a month ago that they had flights to nowhere. You could take a yeah. four-hour flight down to Antarctica, I think it is, and back. It was like $3,000. Those flights <laughs> have sold out. Um, yeah. I see Singapore Airlines has converted two of their planes on the tarmac to restaurants for people who miss flights and airline meals, if one can imagine that, can now go sit on a plane as if it was a restaurant oh at uh, their airport. And I see uh, one of the cruise lines out of Singapore as well has now started cruises to nowhere, being Singapore still has a bubble. Um, and they sold 6,000 berths in f five days. So you know, all those things just reinforce that people have an incredible desire to get back out on the road. We know that yeah. we've all lived through the same lockdown for seven months plus. So I think, you know, it's very easy. You know, all of us in the travel industry are doing more and more to host virtual presentations, virtual events. We just did one for Uniworld last week where Ellen Betridge, our CEO, hosted a virtual event. A night in Venice, it was called, where for one hour we hosted 6,000 people, which were mostly our past travelers, 
to hear from one of our captains, to hear from one of our butlers who made a, uh, a Bellini, which is champagne or Prosecco yeah. with uh, peach juice. And yeah. people just loved it because they got to feel what it was like to be in Venice. We did a recipe with them. And then Just we talked taste. about the itinerary and so forth. No, exactly. And uh, yeah. I think everyone has a lot of built up excitement and we're all raring to go. I would say, obviously, there is a lot of concern, especially for people, say, over the age of 50 or 60 on, am I going to get the virus? If I get the virus, you know, how am I going to be taken care of in the destination? Mm -hmm. How am I going to get home? If there is quarantine, what do I do about that? And I just want to reassure your listeners that the industry is doing all we can to get back out on the road as quickly as possible, but in the most responsible way possible. Obviously, no one wants to be in a situation where what happened with one of the cruise lines that I won't mention by name, obviously, don't mm -hmm. be derogatory to them, where they had three cruise ships that obviously got locked down with COVID back in April. And that was just terrible for the brand. It was terrible more so, obviously, for the passengers who were on board and the the crew that were on board and they were sure. stuck in harbors for weeks before they could get off. And the number of cases obviously spiked. So, you know, we always put the well-being and hygiene and health of our guests first and foremost and our own team. So our protocols are, I think, outstanding. You've seen the protocols for those companies that operate in Europe who've done some initial river cruises and ocean cruises have worked very well. Oh, we great. We're working at the global level with an organization called the World Travel and Tourism Council, WTTC.org, that we're a member of and over 200 other companies in travel and tourism are a member of, some of the biggest names in the business. And we try to talk with one voice through WTTC to the governments of the world because travel and tourism is very disparate. We always more internally focused. We don't have a big lobbying effort. And WTTC was actually started in 1990 by uh, Henry Kissinger, who was then the head of state for the U.S. and secretary of state, excuse me. Mm -hmm. And he thought that travel and tourism was an incredible force for good because it generates so much GDP in each economy. It, it generates a lot of employment, but no one understands the size and scale of it. So WTTC was formed by that. We work with Oxford Economics to put out data regularly on each country's size and scale of travel and tourism. And, you know, so that your listeners know, travel and tourism last, gener last year generated 10.1% of GDP. We employed over 350 million people in travel and tourism, direct and indirect. That's amazing. Manufacturing, which no one knows. We're bigger than banking. We're bigger than farming. We're bigger than the motor car industry or the automotive industry. No one knows mm. that. No one in the industry is asking for, you know, handouts mm -hmm. like farming and so forth. But equally, we're not looking for barriers to be put up inadvertently by governments. We are the second largest contributor to economic goodwill in the world behind manufacturing, which no one knows. We're bigger than banking. We're bigger than farming. We're bigger mm -hmm. than the automotive industry. No mm -hmm. one knows that. No one in the industry is asking for you know, handouts like farming and so forth. But equally, we're not looking for barriers to be put up inadvertently by governments. Barriers include, you know, visas that cost a lot of money and are very yeah. difficult to get or other barriers to entry that prevents the free flow of tourism from here to there, as we're seeing today. 
and the right. countries are obviously because they know how important travel and tourism is that they are in, investing in their infrastructure. If you know over the next 10 years, you know, your tourism can grow by X, you can employ X more million people, you're going to generate more economic well-being for your economy. You want to make sure your airports are big enough, that your train stations are big enough to handle this potential growth, that you can handle that growth, not over crowding, obviously, but growth. And when you look at the US, for example, we've not invested enough, as you know, in our infrastructure the last 10, right. 15 years. And I'm not getting into the politics here, but just the money. You know, when you look at we've spent over a trillion dollars in the Middle East and in the, in the Afghanistan war over the last 10 years, that's where a lot of our investment has gone rather than investing in our infrastructure. And China's done the opposite. You know, they building a new airport literally every month and they doubled mm -hmm. the size of their or they built a new airport in Beijing to replace the airport they built before the Olympics in less than a year. So here's yeah. a country and, and they've got no inbound tourism, even without COVID, because they don't invest enough in making it appealing enough to people with pollution and so forth. So it is a complicated yeah. set of issues, but WTTC certainly tries to help governments and people understand the benefit of travel and tourism and that we're a great economic driver, which is so important today. And WTTC likewise has projected that there will be 197, 197 million jobs lost this year related to travel and tourism. 5.5 trillion US dollars have been lost in the economy from the shutdown of travel and tourism. And that if we can get travel and tourism going again very quickly, we can get 100 million people back to work around the world. And so we just joined a G20 meeting, which was held virtually hosted by Saudi Arabia this last week. And we spoke to these G20 ministers talking about these issues, making them aware of it and how if they can work together to help ensure the right protocols are in place. And it's very simple stuff. We need rapid testing before you get on a plane. We need rapid yeah. testing when you land in the destination. And these tests need to be 5 or $10, not $150 to $250 that they are today. You know, United yeah. Airlines is offering rapid testing, but it costs $150 to the customer. And it's in like five airports in the U.S. So that's no good. You know, yeah, so people practical. need that reassurance that they're going to be tested so they know everyone on the plane has been tested and no one has COVID as of that moment, that there's not going to be seven or 14 days quarantine when you get there or when you get back. No one knows what the protocols are. And if they're consistent from country to country, then everyone's aware of what's expected of them. And that's as big a deterrent today to people traveling as to also whether or not they're going to get COVID. So, mm -hmm. you know, that's why we're trying to talk to these governments to try to work in unison to find a way to get our economies going again. And obviously putting 100 million people back to work will have a huge benefit to those economies, to those individuals. And also those governments that are not having to fund these handouts and or it'll get their tax revenues back up as people are visiting because tourists are obviously incredible generators of uh, hard currency in the destination when people are visiting the US and staying in hotels, using Uber, using taxis, staying in restaurants, et cetera, et cetera. And that's not going to start until people feel comfortable traveling again. Yeah. And with a vaccine, you know, potentially months away, what kind of decisions is your team making to determine when to start selling tours and things next year? Sure. 
So we have something we created a few months ago called the sensitivity tracker, where we're looking at a hundred different data points, how, what people are looking at on our website, what people are searching on Google as it pertains to travel terms. Are they looking at COVID testing versus I want to go to Italy next year, which gives mm-hmm. us some sentiment that people are ready to start considering travel rather than still worrying about COVID and so forth. So we're looking at all that data. And it's starting to change a bit out of the U.S. where people are starting to look at, you know, wanting to go to Italy more than they're looking at what are the issues of COVID testing or whatever it might be. So that's mm-hmm. somewhat encouraging, but we want to be careful, obviously, not to offend people by putting a call to action in front of them before they're yeah. ready to start thinking about traveling and booking. And equally, we don't want to be spending money in a soft market that isn't ready to travel. And then certainly in the U.S., we've obviously got a national election coming up in a few days. And that always crimps travel and bookings the month before and sometimes the month after. So Mm -hmm. we're very cautious around that. But our view is come January, February, there will be hopefully, you know, a lot of progress made, better news and specifics on when the vaccines are going to be available, where and mm-hmm. how we're going to get them, better progress on rapid testing that's affordable, more contact tracing and all of those issues. And that by then, hopefully people will be more confident. But right now, from a macro thousand foot view perspective, Ian, you know, we're expecting that the second half of next year might be reasonably good in terms of people traveling and seeing numbers being reasonable versus say 2019, but that the first six months are going to be very difficult still because there's going to be a lot of uncertainty. The vaccine isn't going to be out there in, you know, mass quantities. Mm -hmm. And there's still going to be a lot of uncertainty because governments just won't have made enough progress on rapid testing. But that said, obviously when one watches the news every day, there are people I can't tell you the percentage, obviously, but Americans, Spanish, Germans, Brits are out there traveling who want a holiday, want to go on holiday now. We saw it this summer, obviously. We saw it on Memorial Day. We saw it Labor Day domestically. And obviously in Europe, they're now facing a second wave as a result of a lot of Spaniards going on holiday and they now got lockdowns again. But there's also unfortunately quite a difference in behavior. If you saw on the BBC last night, Liverpool's on lockdown, but the streets were full and people were partying and they weren't wearing masks. So, you know, lockdowns, Uh unfortunately, this time around are not being enforced or followed in some jurisdictions as well as they were because people are burnt out. They're sick of it. But, you know, this is a virus. This is not something Mm -hmm. that's politically oriented. It's not something that, you know, crosses that won't cross borders. It's not tied to a calendar. And unless we all help mitigate this virus, we're all going to be sitting here this time next year with the same problems. And unfortunately, I think what the West has demonstrated is we have no experience with this, whereas the Asians had SARS, they had MERS, you know, going back Mm -hmm. to 93, 2003 and so forth. And so they learned from that first virus what they needed to do. So South Korea, Taiwan, they had PPE, E inventory that we didn't have. They knew they had to wear a mask, that this wasn't a political hoax or anything like that. And, you know, you go to South Korea or Taiwan and their stadiums are full when they have public sports because people 
have accepted that they got to wear a mask, they got to behave appropriately and civilly, and that this is in everyone's best interest. Whereas mm-hmm. obviously with us, uh, you've got no spectators in the fans at professional sports events or very few. So, you know, I just hope that the West does learn as quickly as possible uh, what we need yeah. to do to adjust to this pandemic, because otherwise it's just not going to get there. I hope so too. How do you think that travel will be reimagined? Perhaps, obviously, the, the negative impacts that we've gone over and those are fairly obvious, but what, what sort of positive impacts do you think this might have on the travel industry? We're all going to be a lot smaller as mm-hmm. we recover. You know, the airlines have cut so much capacity, et cetera. Uh, we're all going to take several years to recover. So our planet's going to do a lot better. I think I mentioned to you last time we got together, I read recently that there's something like 3 billion animals, et cetera, that are killed every year in roadkill. And they expect that right. number to drop by 1 billion because of how many fewer cars are on the road. Likewise, we've heard, I think some of it is social myth, you know, that the waters are clearer and so forth. I read another study that, you know, our carbon off carbon output globally was about the same in May as it was last May. Mm-hmm. I certainly hope that, you know, there's going to be a benefit to the world from a climate change standpoint with how many fewer people were flying, traveling, et cetera, these past months. And over yeah, the next several years, you know, there will be fewer people traveling until the vaccine is universal and or we've beaten this pandemic. So I think that's a benefit to the world. But It's also a negative, as you said, more animals are being killed in Africa right now because people have no jobs, so they can't afford to buy food for their families. So they're Mm -hmm. killing anything they can see out in the bush because they have no other food supply and or there's more poaching because there's no tourists and governments have cut down on their military and so forth that are out there protecting wildlife from poaching. Obviously, local communities have been decimated without local support from tourists and companies that aren't in the business or have had to cut back. And I'm sure you're familiar with obviously how many charities are decimated because people aren't economically able to support charities the way they used to or companies as well. Although I'm very proud that TTC funded all of its TreadRight projects this year. That's great. Yeah. And and obviously, like you said, I think poaching is an interesting one. I think many people tend to think of poaching as people who go on kind of hunting safaris, but actually the majority of poaching is done, I believe, by people who live in the local communities and who are, you know, really just trying to make ends meet by providing food for their family. I wanted to transition a bit to um, quick questions, mostly about frequent flying, which is a, it's a passion of mine and earning airline miles and points. And I know you said you used to fly about 250 days per year. So do you track your, your mileage and, and how much you actually do fly from a, from a miles standpoint? No, I only tracked how many days I uh, traveled away from home. I always donate my miles to a charity we've supported for some years, the We Charity out of uh, Canada that does incredible work in the destinations. So I never really cared about my flight miles being very fortunate. That was my next question, which is how do you, which is how do you use your miles? So you donate them. That's really cool. Yeah. Given, I think four or five million miles on British Airways to uh, the We Charity in the past. That's great. Good for you. I like to close by asking everyone this this two-part question, which is what impact has travel had on you and what impact do you believe it has on the world? Sure. You know, when you go somewhere and, and you get the opportunity to be immersed there and spend time there, you, you have an appreciation and a respect, I believe, for that 
community, for their culture. And also when you take your children there and you go to Kenya and you see these kids come in and meet you while they're on holiday and they're wearing their school clothes and you see their sneakers have these huge holes in them and so forth. And one of your kids says, you know, well, why'd they wear their school uniforms when they're on holiday? Because that's the only clothing that they own. Mm -hmm. Wow especially when you travel to these destinations and some of these emerging communities and so forth, you have an appreciation how lucky and grateful we are as people to live in a country like America and to have the resources and ability to visit and to help other people. And they always say, and the UN has always said this, you know, if we had more travel, there'd be less war because people would have a greater appreciation, respect and understanding for each other you know, I believe I'm a better human being for it and I'm more appreciative and accepting of other cultures. That's Brett Tolman. You can find him on Twitter at Brett Tolman and you can be sure you won't find him hanging out under any baboon-filled trees, at least not without a raincoat. If you enjoyed the show, it would mean a lot if you'd leave a review or share it with someone who might find it interesting. This actually helps me out a lot. If you're free to reach out to me on social with any questions or comments about the show, once again, I'm your host, Ian Agrimis, wishing you smooth travels. Peace.